This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity centered design. I'm Brooklyn born and Brooklyn made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is June Sarpong, Director of Creative Diversity at the BBC. She's a presenter, an author, and her most recent book is Diversify Six Degrees of Integration. Welcome to the show, June. How are you? I'm good, Phil. How are you? It's been a long time. I know. It has been a long time. These past few interviews that I've done have been an opportunity for me to, in a lot of ways, reconnect with people that I haven't spoken to in a long time. And you're one of those people. And as much as I gave the introduction and with your many hyphenates, with the many things that you've you've done, it doesn't give full justice to... A, your career, all the things you've accomplished, all the things you've you've managed to produce and be a part of. So that's one way that that introduction falls short. And then the other way the introduction falls short is in you as a person, because you're giving me this face as if you're surprised by this, but I know it's not the first time you've heard this, but I'm going to make it, if, even if it is the first time, I'm going to say it for all the people in the cheap seats in the back <laughs> who might be hearing this for the first time. But in, in all seriousness, we met, I believe, around 2012. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And you have always been someone that has been incredibly open and generous and kind. And although these are words that I think people throw around a lot and they don't have like, they don't sound like they have all this power. Like people love all these like, oh, they're a rock star. And they love all these like words that I hate because they're so corny. And I think the words that that exhibit like people's character, even though they're very old and maybe not as sexy, are, are more thoughtful. And so you've always been someone, like I said, very kind and very generous with me over the years and just have a very incredible spirit. So that's a much better introduction than Aww. the one I just read. Well, thank you. And the same to you. I mean, you're one of those people that, you know, there aren't enough of them in the world that actually lives your truth. And, you know, your own story is so interesting and giving up a big corporate career to follow your passion. How wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. You Sometimes (laughs) sometimes creditors feel like that wasn't a good decision. But, you know, (laughs) it does. It's not about the creditors. At the end of the day, it's about the spirit, right? Exactly. What's going on right now? We're probably realizing that more than ever. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I want to give you an opportunity to just share a little bit about your path, right? Because I think your path is so instructive Mm -hmm. to anyone who's listening to the show. And You also have recent accolades, which I'm going to let you share with us. There's titles now and all kind of like, you know, you're in rarefied air. So Corona's put a spanner in the works because all of the ceremonies have been canceled. (laughs) (laughs) They'll do them in the future when we get through this, you know, because I want to see 
all of that in its full glory. So I'm going to cede the floor and just give me a little bit of of background before I get into your current work at NBC. I am the daughter of Ghanaian immigrants um, and I was born and raised in London, in the East End of London. And I grew up in a very blue collar area. But my parents were incredibly aspirational because in Ghana, you know, they had had quite a sort of illustrious career or whatever. And then, you know, the coup happened. And so we ended up in the UK with nothing. And I think when you sort of straddle both worlds, it means that you just understand the human experience in a a perhaps a slightly different way in that I've known what it feels like to certainly not have but I've been fortunate enough to also know what it feels like to have. And I think that when you understand both in equal measure, it just means that you do have much more of a sense of purpose because you understand how unfair things are and how unfair things can be. And so therefore it it sort of drives you to want to try and help to level the playing field. My own career, I was very lucky. I got an internship at KISS FM, which is very similar to the KISS FM that you guys have uh, in the States. And um, then I got work experience with them when I was 16. And so I, within a year, was on air. Um, and then I went to college. And for us, at college as in high school. So mm-hmm. university is what we call college uh, for you guys. And so I did my A-levels. And then I was going to go to university. But KISS offered me a job. And so I started working at KISS when I was 18, and then I went to MTV, Sony Music, and then Channel 4, which is a big network out here, and then started just in television working for all the sort of British broadcasters. And then I got to a point where I think perhaps I was only 27 or something, 28, and I, and I kind of got to a point where I had been very lucky I'd done a lot but I was no longer scared and I thought my god if I don't try and push things now I probably never will and so I moved to America which is when we met and I then ended up setting up a women's conference and I think that's what I was doing yeah and in fact we met through our mutual friend Sarah Menka have you had her on this show yet not yet she's on the short list actually i was looking at some of her yeah, stuff some of her stuff yesterday as a matter of yeah. fact yeah good Perfect. anyway so i set up this women's conference called we women inspirational enterprise or co-founded it and so yeah i lived in the states for i think eight years or something like that and then i recently came home maybe about three or four years ago and ended up writing a book as you discussed which is on the benefits of diversity and inclusion. And so that book, I was fortunate, did quite well and became the sort of DNI tool for a lot of corporates. So corporates, both in the States and in the UK primarily, started using the book and then asking me to come in and consult for them and sort of help structure some of their DNI processes, which was something I'd never really considered. Mm-hmm. You know, I've just lived it as opposed to sort of doing it. But the thing with the book was there was a lot of research because I partnered with Oxford University. So there was a lot of data on where we are with the various underrepresented groups and how we better integrate them into society. And it was comparing, or it does compare the UK and the US 
and where there are ways for us to learn from each other. And so that kind of took off. And then the, you know, sort of the execs at the BBC read the book and I had presented for them in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they were like, would you be interested in coming in as a corporate executive, which is very new for me. Yes. Uh, and so <laughs> I thought, wow. Well, the main thing was I wanted to make sure that there was assurances from the top that they were serious about this. Mm-hmm. And they really did want to affect change in a meaningful way. And so once I had that reassurance, it kind of was a no-brainer. And so I've now been there since November, which is, I think, four months or so. And I'm loving it. I'm really enjoying it. And I think there's an opportunity to do some good work. There's a lot in that journey that Mm. really stands out to me. And so my challenge is always like figuring out like, okay, where to kind of zero in and start. Mm. And... Mm. I'm going to take us back. I do want to spend some time talking about the book. Mm. So we're going to get there. But Mm. I want to talk about that moment you described kind of early in the journey of having lived in these two experiences. You Mm. know, obviously, I'm also a child of immigrants. My parents came from the Caribbean to the United States, but I also have family in London and Bath and and all that kind of stuff, a typical Caribbean experience, right? You go two places, maybe three, New York, the UK or Toronto, maybe, you know, those are like your options if you're leaving. And you kind of talked about kind of shifting between worlds of what your parents knew in Ghana and then having to adjust to an experience in the UK and how that informed so much of your perspective. Like, Tell me a a little bit more about some of those experiences of kind of going between the two worlds. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about it the other day and in that, you know, I've always been throughout my life, someone that's been a sort of outsider, perhaps that has been allowed in for whatever reason. And so I've always sat in those two worlds. And even I was thinking about it the other day when we moved. So I was born in the UK. All, all of us, all my siblings and I were born in the UK. And then we, my parents moved to Ghana when I was like one. And the idea was we were going to be raised in Ghana. You know, they were young, they were idealistic, and they wanted to be a part of sort of helping to rebuild the country as mm-hmm. they were. And then the coup happened. And, you know, we were in the group that was the least popular in the country at the time in that we were supporters of the previous administration, or at least my parents were, and we were also part of what was considered the elite. So there's sort of two groups that definitely were not welcome in the country at the time, Mm -hmm. so we had to flee. And so when I came back to the UK, I think I was perhaps five, and I was thinking the other day, oh, God, yeah, I, you know, having a strong African accent and going into school and having to sort of figure out a way to feel or a way to belong when you clearly sounded like you didn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely shaped the way I've then gone about my life in the sense that I've always known how to be a chameleon, but but still keeping the essence of who I am. And I think that really does come from that experience. I think that comes from being a kid, coming into a new country, even though it was 
effectively sort of our old country and immediately sounding different because I was very fortunate. The area we moved to in East London was very multicultural. So it wasn't as if we were the only black kids in the area. It was none of that. You know, in mm-hmm. fact, I was so lucky as a kid. I grew up in an area where there was hardly any racism. Mm-hmm. And actually, when I look at my experience with that, it was much more when I got older and went into the media industry rather than growing up, which meant that I also had a strong foundation. So I had the strong foundation of my African upbringing and my African roots. Having that, it just meant that I didn't also experience some of the trauma that some people of color experience when they are the only ones. I didn't have that child. So I think those two things together meant that I had this very strong foundation, but then the being the outsider also meant that I had to learn tools and skills on how to connect with people on a deeper level that allows for perhaps a way to move past the sort of the obvious differences. And those obvious differences, it it almost feels like what we call like code switching. You know, some people might be familiar with the term. Some people might not be familiar with the term. When you code switch, you go from one reality to another and somewhat seamlessly. Right. So for me, I use the euphemism that I could be on the block or the border. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really. Yeah. And happy in either. Yeah. Happy and either competent in both. It sounds in your journey that having that strong foundation made it possible for you to have to take that perspective and almost turn it into a superpower, right? Where you can yeah. navigate mm-hmm. multiple realities. Yeah. Yeah. And just genuinely like people, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt, right? <laughs> I think people can tell when you like them. <laughs> yeah. Tell me as you move into the media space, like you kind of alluded to not having dealt with that sort of overt racism until you yeah. went to the media yeah. space. So, yeah, not ever. I mean, maybe the, the odd occasion, but nothing serious. Yeah, yeah. As in a kid growing up. But yeah, for sure. When I um, went into the media industry, I was probably the only one in my generation of presenters or hosts, as you Mm -hmm. call them. So there was like a group of young hosts that are sort of synonymous with a generation. So anybody who's Generation X in the UK grew up watching My Contemporaries and I. Mm -hmm. You know, we were part of a gang and we all had shows and, and we all presented with each other at some point. And I was the only person of color, actually in the group trying to lose a guy and no yeah so I was the only person of color in the group and so what that meant was I was often in places where again I was the only one but I was able to experience pretty quickly that the rules were not the same mm-hmm. so when it came to the sorts of opportunities that were available to my white counterparts There were lots of opportunities that came their way that weren't available to me, even when I had shows that were perhaps more popular than theirs, whether it was magazine covers or endorsement deals, you know, all of those things that come with the additional add-ons that come on, that come with the work that we do. And I remember one of my earliest experiences when I was at MTV, I was very young at the time, I think I was 20 or so, and I had a show on MTV which was incredibly popular. 
And there was a magazine in the, in the UK called Sky Magazine, and they did a feature with all of the MTV girls, which is what we were called then. I mean, mm-hmm. you've never that now, thank you. Yeah, things have, uh, things have changed. <laughs> but back then we were called the MTV girls, or we BJs. But anyway, what happened was, as in video, I'm just real like video jockeys. That yeah. Were <laughs> So anyway, so with the MTV girls and the magazine did a cover shoot with all of the female presenters and the shoot was something like MTV, however many delicious reasons to watch MTV. And I was included. And what happened later, well, maybe it was the era of social media, my goodness, it would have been pandemonium, but back then people would call. And so the viewers started calling the network to ask why I wasn't in the shoot. And for me, it was, it was such a painful experience because I only found out when I walked past the newsstand and saw the magazine and saw all my colleagues and I wasn't part of it. And so the fans started calling. And so obviously the, the, the execs started getting a bit worried. And it turned out that it wasn't even the magazine that said they didn't want me. The press department at the time had thought I wasn't right for the shoot. So they hadn't submitted me. And, you know, the thing with these things is you can either choose to look at it one way. You've got two options, haven't you? You either become bitter, if that's the word, or you decide that you are going to somehow make sure that something good comes out of that experience and you make it a teachable moment for those that have made that mistake. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that definitely sort of was so uplifting was the way the audience responded and, and the fact that they came to my defense and supported me through it. But what my agents and I did was we went in and we sort of sat down with the execs and we were very blunt and very clear about it all. And as they say, when life gives you lemons, I say you make lucrative lemonade. And yeah. so we have very good negotiation that year. I got a good kitchen out of it. So, <laughs> That's great. So we, made it, we made it work. And then they assigned me my own PR person who then got me unbelievable coverage. And actually, if I'm honest, Phil, that was a real turning point in my career. Mm-hmm. Because what from there put me in another league and really helped me move to that next phase. And then I got my Channel 4 job. But I had lots of experiences like that throughout my career. It's interesting because, again, there's a few things that I leap at as you tell Mm -hmm. that story. One is that there is an option to get bitter. If it keeps happening again and again, it is hard not to. So I'm not in any way downplaying that. Yeah. And and I think sometimes it's a little bit of both where, because I know in, in my own experiences, and I don't have those kind of experiences, right? No one's asking me to be on a magazine cover. Um, but yet. <laughs> yet, yet. But, you know, there is this idea of why do I have to teach you these things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it should seem that you should know them to a certain extent. And, okay, let's give some allowances for that being a particular moment in time. But... Mm-hmm. We're still seeing these things happen in our contemporary times, you know, and I apologize for this because I don't have her name off the top of my head. But there is a woman of color Hmm. who's a climate activist 
And so she's in the that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you know, the episode, and they cut her out. Yeah. Yeah. They cut her out of the photo. Yeah. Right. And I'm sorry. I'm apologizing to her right now. I follow her on Twitter. I, I don't her. have her name. Yeah. I don't have her name right in front of me and I'm not going to yeah. dig around yeah. for it. I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah. I think about like what happened to her that yeah. happened a few months ago. I know. Right. So editors are still making these these choices. Yeah. And think of the dedication that young girl has put into making our planet a better place. And still these limited thinking editors cannot see past it. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very frustrating. And I think that gives an opportunity to start to talk about the book because you made a point as you were introing it a little bit where you said, I just took some quick notes that for you, this was a function of you've been living this experience, right? Yeah. And now you had to translate a lived experience yeah. into almost a manual yeah. For, yeah. for organizations to, <laughs> to be able to use. So tell me a little bit about what that process was like to kind of take your lived experience and translate it into something yeah. that is so valuable. Yeah, for sure. Because I suppose the thing was that what I wanted, and I think, you know, you and I, I think we even had similar conversations the first time we met all those years ago. You know, I wanted something that would have a level of authenticity to it. Because I think when you are from the minority group, it's rare that you have your experience articulated in a way that really resonates with you and connects with you on a, on a true level. Do you see what I mean? So I wanted to be able to do that. But I also wanted to be able to do it in a way that would help those from the majority group truly understand the lived experience of being other, whatever that other is in our society, without the need to defend their position. Because often when we get into these conversations, straight away people from the majority group feel that perhaps that they are being accused of things and therefore they become defensive and a wall goes up and nothing, the movement doesn't happen. It was a real fine balance of making sure that I was honest and true to that lived experience and anybody who is anything other knows what that feels like to a degree in the way that perhaps if you are a privileged white man, you wouldn't. And let's not also assume that the lived experience of all white men is the same either. You know, the lived experience of working class white men is very different to the lived experience of elite white men. So if you look in society, there's only a tiny, 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 tiny group that really get to truly fulfill their potential where there are no obstacles. It's just designed for them to thrive and succeed. It's, it's a minuscule percentage. But we also have to acknowledge the fact that there's a hierarchy of inclusion. And then you have varying degrees of where everybody else is. So I wanted to be able to get that honesty across. But I also wanted to make sure that the people who were reading it, many of whom would be gatekeepers, many of whom would be in the position to actually change some of this stuff, would be able to read it in a way that would allow them to understand what systemic discrimination feels like and how it plays out, but not to feel accused, so therefore they would close down. 
And I think that was the balance that I was trying to get. And I, and I hope I was able to do that. I mean, it's been quite well received. So fingers crossed. Yeah, there. the reception for the book has been great. Like as someone who watches some of this stuff unfold literally from three thousand miles away it's it's like i can see the reception and hear people you know I, i'm on twitter a lot so i see people sure. talking about things and using things as a resource i've seen you interviewed about the book and i find that that's one of the more challenging things because there is the propensity for people to put up walls mm-hmm. right and that happens even in as someone who does strategy work, yeah. people put up walls when I'm talking about their product or service. Mm, like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. ah, why are you so mad about this? This is Coke, yeah. right? Like, Personal, yeah. Yeah, this is not like, you know, you don't own it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I get that you work here and you're proud to work here and all that kind of stuff. That's great. But they they get very upset if you mm. bring up critique sometimes Mm -hmm. and i'm not specifically coke it could be anybody right and now you're talking about behavior that is already sensitive Mm -hmm. by its nature and and also invisible to a certain extent i i talk about that a lot there's so many things that go on in our lives that are invisible and i think often when you're dealing with privilege people don't see it yeah. If you think it's just your life, it's just your life, isn't it? You're not thinking, oh, I'm privileged. You know, most people don't have that level of self-reflection to even think of that or that emotional intelligence to even explore the possibility of that. And it's evolution, right? Me 10 years ago as a guy, you know, just using sort of a male-female perspective to compare with the bigger conversation that is race-based, a lot of things I thought X number of years ago, I don't think anymore, right? Like yeah. I had to, yeah. you know, evolve, I had evolve right? Yeah. And sometimes, but I it, think that's yeah. a great point, Phil. That's such a powerful point. And I think that that's kind of where we are. We're at a bit of a crossroads in the sense that we are so intolerant of allowing people to evolve. If you look at a lot of the dialogue and the narrative that's around at the moment, we hold people to account and that's rightfully so but we do hold people hostage for things that they may have said i'm not talking about the serious stuff of course not the serious stuff you know of course that needs to be tried in the criminal justice system but the the sort of slightly somewhat offensive things that people may have believed or may have said when they were younger we still hold them to that even though they might be somebody else now and i think we need to figure out a way to have that conversation that allows for that evolution and also acknowledges that transformation. Because isn't that what we're all trying to do? We're trying to encourage people to be better. We're trying to encourage people to change. But when they do change, we're still holding them to account for things that they said when they were young and stupid. I don't know how we get the balance, but I do believe we do have to find it. I don't have an answer to that. I did jot that down, this idea of holding people hostage versus holding them to account, right? Like, I think there's something profound in that. I understand exactly what you're saying because there is, now we're starting to get into these questions and thoughts about what is justice, what is compassion, 
And yeah. how do we hold space for those things? Yeah, and look, time. there are times where you need justice. Do you see what I mean? In the case of some of the sort of extreme sexual assault cases that we've seen recently that have been tried for you know, years ago, thank goodness that justice has finally been served. No question. But I do believe when you look at some of the sort of silly tweets that somebody may have written 15 years ago or whatever, and then we're looking to destroy whole careers because of that. I just, I find that a bit extreme. It's a tough balance because I think you go the other side and, and maybe I'm playing both sides where, you know, there's this this idea now of cancel culture, right? Like this has become yeah. one of yeah. the yeah. things that's kind of out there. And I do feel like some of that is a little, little overblown in the sense that I'm like, well, you still talking, right? Like you're not really, like you're really not canceled. I think a lot of comedians, and this has become a thing where they're like, oh, you know, I just can't say what I want. And I'm like, you're on Netflix. Like you're saying exactly what you want to say, yeah. right? Like, and getting rewarded handsomely for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> But you've been paid a while to be on Netflix. <laughs> it's tough to balance these things. Mm. Like this is mm-hmm. is the point, yeah. right? But it seems but like we- the work you've done, like getting into an organization like BBC. You, obviously, you have a you've worked with them, like you mentioned in the past. There is a, a sense of you know you know the to navigate to some extent. But now you're in the organization, yeah. like you know, in a very specific role. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it sounded like it was very important for you to understand that they were taking this seriously. So tell me about those conversations. Like what was some of your thought process? Because oh, you someone who's a, who's accomplished tons of things outside of these being inside an organization like this. And now yeah. you're going inside. What right. was that? Yeah. I mean, well, the thing was. I felt really passionate that if we could crack it at the BBC, it would go a long way to changing our whole industry in the UK. Because you don't have the same setup in America. In America, you don't really have public service broadcasting in the way that we do. Yes, there's PBS, but it's not the same. Whereas with us, you know, we all pay for the BBC. Anybody that has a television, whether they're watching the BBC or not, is paying towards the organization. And if you look at what's happening with Corona, when this is all said and done, this is going to be such an interesting case study in terms of why public service broadcasting matters. Because the way the BBC has been able to step up and pick up all the pieces that have been left by our public bodies because we are now all self-isolating and we are social distancing and kids are not in school and so on. It's unbelievable. So now the curriculum is being shown on BBC channels. We are teaching the nation's children. We have all sorts of shows and interstitials and content around how to stay healthy while you're at home. So imagine the whole network has been turned to being a force for good during Corona. If you're a 
commercial organization that's worried about shareholders and advertising revenues, you just don't have that luxury. And so it's been so wonderful and humbling to be able to witness this and then also to be at the center of everything that's happening, you know, and, and to listen to those calls and to see different colleagues collaborating with each other to figure out, you know, how are we going to make sure our kids learn the curriculum so they're able to sit their GCSEs in their exams next year? You know, the BBC is stepping up to fill that gap. And I think because the BBC plays such an important role in really being the engine of the creative industry in Britain, I thought, wow, if we can get them doing the right thing, the trickle effect will be exponential. Because anybody who's doing anything in British entertainment or media started at the BBC or will have worked at the BBC or will work at the BBC. And so when I joined, the real issues that they were having was around, particularly around race, because there had been a big race scandal with a news presenter who talked about her lived experience as a woman of color, viewer complained, et cetera, et cetera. And this thing became this whole massive scandal. And it sort of took the plaster off some serious deep wounds that, that, that were there between communities of color and the organization, both internally and externally. So I joined off the back of that. And so for me, I was very clear to the director general and board and so on, that what I wanted to do was to focus on three key areas for the first year. And those three areas are BAME, which is race. So it's black, Asian, minority, ethnic, disability, and social mobility. Because in Britain, class, covers everything you know it, it, it skews everything that happens in British life we don't talk about it but it is probably even more so than race the driving force of whether or not you will achieve or if you don't in the sense that if you are a person of color from a privileged background that went to all the schools and so on you're much more likely to succeed than the white person who didn't and I don't necessarily think that that's the case in America but in the UK it is so for me, I wanted to make sure we focus on those three areas, but to start with race because of what had happened with the Naga incident. Naga is a, is a news presenter herself. And so one of the first things I said was, we need something that demonstrates that we're serious. So I managed to, along with some other colleagues, convince the Director General and our board to ensure that there would not be a leadership committee within the organization that didn't have at least two diverse people on there. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, managed to get that through and we then set about trying to recruit these diverse advisors that would join all of our leadership committees. And there were 20 places for, because, you know, these are the most senior groups within. And we had over 460 applicants, the most has ever been for something like this internally, because we were only looking at internal applicants. And they all join. They were supposed to be joining this month, but obviously because of Corona, that's been pushed back. So they join in September mm-hmm. and we're training them and we're training the committees themselves on how to be inclusive. And so that's just one of the first things that's tangible. And then now I have to work on the strategy, what the creative inclusive strategy would be, which is what our commissioners will use which is what our producers will use, our line managers, et cetera, et cetera, production heads, in terms of how 
we integrate inclusion into every element of what we do creatively. So I don't do workplace DNI. There's another woman that does that, but anything creative globally now comes underneath. So yeah, it's exciting. You know, we use this a lot. It comes up even in things I, I work on being in the room, but yes. folks have to be empowered while they're there. Yes. Yes. Right. It's so funny. I say in all my talks, I say, is everyone in the room? And if they're not, why not? And actually, like you say, the second piece is making sure they have agency when they're there and they're able to contribute their point of difference. And even for me, that's something that I'm still learning. You know, I've one of those my whole career has been you know, being the odd one out. But still, you know, I'm still having to sort of develop the confidence to be outspoken in rooms where I'm the only person like me in the room. And it's a skill and it's something that you have to work on and develop. But, you know, when you're passionate about why you're somewhere, it makes you overcome whatever insecurities that you may have yourself. But yeah, yeah. you know. And it's very difficult. I think we assume that the person has a title or they have this thing and so they can say stuff. But I think any room that one enters into is a political space, right? Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff going on there and you have to navigate yeah. that. It's not so easy. It's not so easy. And, you know, so I joined the executive committee. So I'm the um, first black woman they've had on the exec committee for the organization. And even that is still an adjustment for me. Even though I'm fighting for everybody else to be on committees as well, as, as well, it's still an adjustment for me because, you know, I've been on quite a few boards throughout my career, but it's very different because I've always been brought in to those boards for my area of expertise and as an outsider. And I think it's very different to be on a board as an outsider than to be on a board as an insider. Mm -hmm. where you are working for that organization. It's very different. And so yeah. even that is something that I've been working on for myself. And I think that actually every step that you take where you sort of, I don't know the word is in the terms, to move up or not, psychologically something has to switch in you. And that in itself is a process. I love the fact that you say that even for you, that you're, still working through these things. You're still processing those things because I'm going to share a story. I want to really make it clear that you are someone that is used to being in very important rooms, right? Mm. So for yeah. you to be saying this, I want to contextualize this with a time we got together. You might not even remember this, but I always okay. laugh at the story. I was in London and we were both in London at the same time. I was in London, you were in London, and mm. I was probably working on my conference or something, but I was in London for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And you invited me, text me or something. You're like, oh, I'm having this breakfast tomorrow. Like, you should come and come check it out. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, breakfast, food, okay, I'm there. Right. And so when I travel, especially at that time, I'm usually casual, but when I'm packing and I'm away from home, I got to be a little casual. So I was fairly casual mm -hmm. at a time when casual wasn't as cool as it is now. So I might've been a little ahead of like, yeah, I rock sneakers everywhere. And so this breakfast turns out to like be in parliament and I'm with like with all these people 
And I was like, I'm woefully unprepared to really be in this room. <laughs> that was what the Olympics DNA UN breakfast thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's funny. That's good breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great breakfast, but it was like, I'm literally around like people. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm yeah. totally like backpack, yeah. and I'm like, and they're like, "Oh, why are you here?" And I'm like, "Oh, I know her." <laughs> <laughs> you were very used to being in very high rooms, and to to still be going through this evolution, I think is really, yeah. and yeah. to be so honest about it, I think is a, a really interesting yeah. note. Well, I think also it's important to be honest about it, isn't it? Because when we see people that are perhaps doing things that you think, oh, maybe I'd like to do that myself one day or whatever, because I know I, you know I look at lots of women and I think, oh, I'd love to do what she's doing, which is what I loved about the honesty of Michelle Obama's book, because she was very honest and vulnerable and also explaining her process that she didn't just wake up as this person one day. It was a journey and also a journey of unpicking a lot of the negative programming that is put upon people like us in this society in the sense that, you know, these rooms were not designed for us to be in them. And so, therefore, there is a whole mental process that you have to go through that says, yes, I belong, and yes, I have something valuable to offer and to share, and that actually my lived experience is going to give you an insight into a part of society that perhaps you would not have gotten otherwise and that actually you need in order to survive. So I think all of that is internal work that one has to do. But my God, it's worth it when you do, isn't it? So it's like going through the discomfort and I still get anxiety. I still get nerves. And also it makes no sense because one day I'll be with one person and I'm like in my flow and the next day I'm like a nervous wreck. So it makes no <laughs> sense. <laughs> it is. I, I wish I could say, oh, Phil, you know, it's this, it's this that I'm more likely to be nervous. No, like, no, it makes no sense. If it made sense, I'd be able to get a yeah, handle. Solve it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very true. I was doing a talk a couple months ago before everything went on shutdown. A young man who's actually from Ghana as well, who's working for this organization, he asked me at the end, he was like, oh, you know, you felt to him. He's like, oh, you look so comfortable and you did such a good job. Like, how? Like, how did you do that? Mm. And I was like, well, dude, A, I do this a lot. So... Mm. Some of it is also repetition. And then I was like, dude, I'm nervous every time I get on a stage. Like, don't think just because yeah, I might not be up here sweating and like yeah. shaking, but I have nerves. Like some of that is just yeah. adrenaline, right? It's just our body getting us yeah. ready to yeah. do something. Do I'm loath to give advice, but mm. I just told him like, A, every opportunity you get as a young person in this organization to speak, speak. Take it. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it's a presentation of in a room of three people or being on a stage like I was of a thousand people. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, take that opportunity to talk and also practice 
A lot of people actually don't practice when they have to do these things. Oh, um, my God. People don't realize how important practice is. Yeah, they it's, just think they can wing it. It's going to make you more likely to actually deliver. Practice, yeah. practice, practice, yeah? Yeah. Some days you, you have it and some days you don't, right? A little bit of gentleness with yourself, yeah. I, was, I also yeah. told them. But it's just life, isn't it? Some days yeah. you really don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before I get to... You know, the drop and off the dome, which are two segments on the show. I want to give you an opportunity. You know, we're obviously we're in uncharted territory for those listeners when they hear this episode. Obviously, when you hear this, you're going to be in some part of your coronavirus life. You're yeah. either going to be maybe the beginning of it, the middle, the, hopefully the end. But this is the new abnormal for the period that we're in right now. So I want to give you a chance to kind of share maybe some of your impressions on and thoughts on not only how you're doing in this moment, but what are some things you're kind of focusing on for the near future, you know, the next few months, maybe? Well, you know, thank you for asking that, because I think it's really important that we do take time to make sure that we use this opportunity wisely. Obviously, for those that will be impacted by the virus, those that may contract it, and sadly, those that may even lose their lives to the virus, it's a different conversation where that's concerned. It's, it's so serious. But for those of us that are, God willing, healthy, and we're just now just having to stay at home, I think that there is an opportunity to use it to become better versions of ourselves. There is no way we should be the same people by the time we come out of this experience. And if you look at life, it's funny, I was thinking about this the other day, because what I've been doing now is, you know, what time? So I've got time to meditate, time to pray, time to watch spiritual videos and all of this stuff. And I was thinking the other day, how many bad decisions are made because we're frightened of being on our own and being with our own company and how many bad decisions are made because we feel we have to be like something to someone and actually what this opportunity gives us is the ability to one get to know ourselves properly so that we are making choices from a place of alignment and whether that is personally or professionally, but also for us to get to reconnect with our loved ones. You know, if you are now spending time with your partner in a way that you've never actually spent, how many of us have spent 24 hours actually with the people that we're married to or are in relationship with? You know, actually, we're usually distracting by going to work or being busy or whatever. So to have this time to really connect on a deep level, I think is a gift. And also it will be a revelation because maybe also you're not with the right person. And all of this stuff, what this will do is the truth will come out because we're often so living in denial and avoiding our truths. And it's almost as if a higher power, whatever you want to call it, has said, you know what, human beings, you need to change. And it can't be just one part of the world that changes and the others don't. All of you. This is happening to all of you at the same time. 
And therefore, you're going to have to work together to get out of it. Because it can't be just one country sorts theirs out, but another hasn't. Because at any point, someone from that other country could go, then it all starts again. So the world has to interact in a way that it's never had to before. Because even with all of the wars that we've had, not every country's been involved in those wars. Whereas mm-hmm. this coronavirus, everyone's impacted. Yeah. Everybody's impacted. I mean, look, we just found out today our prime minister and our health secretary have it. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. So I do believe that we will come out of it changed and let's hope so that we are changed for the better because it's a choice. You know, yeah. We can either be changed for the worse or we can be changed for the better and we have to decide what that's going to be. I'm hoping profoundly for the better. <laughs> yeah, I think it will be for the better. I really do. I yeah. do. After people watch loads of, you know, Obviously not the BBC, but watch lots of bad TV. Still watch the BBC. Why are you watching the BBC? But watch lots of bad TV and all the things to try and avoid time with their thoughts. You then have time with your thoughts, don't you? Yeah. So I think this is going to be a really interesting time. I love BBC. And I'm not just pandering when I say that. Like anyone who knows me knows that I say that the U.S. has no news. Like... The news options in the U.S. are terrible. I'm serious. They're absolutely, utterly terrible across the board. And BBC, I watch BBC World News every night. It's the only place where I get international experience and I hear actual news. There's not a million chirons and explosions and people shouting at one another it's just uh, a person, yeah. maybe two, yeah. talking in normal tones, yeah. giving me yeah. information. I watch that and I watch a little bit of PBS NewsHour because they're also even, but the rest of them are garbage. So I get my news from BBC and also a show that I do love admittedly. <laughs> W1A is so funny to me. Like it's completely oh. hilarious. <laughs> It's just like, so I work in W1A. It yeah. really is just W1A. <laughs> this isn't even my drop, but I'm going to just say for listeners, like watch W1A. It is hilarious because it reminds me of every meeting I've ever had in my life with clients. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it really is, isn't it? It's a great, great show. So, okay, I want to get to Off the Dome where I'm going to ask you just a couple of quick questions. And it's just literally first thing off the top of your head, right? Okay, yeah. So I'm a music lover. And actually, because I've spent a lot of time in the UK, shout out to Wendy, Roger, and Steven, my cousins. (laughs) Um, I'm going to ask you, you have to pick one group because you're a music person, I'm a music person. And I used to love both these groups, Soul to Soul, Loose ends. Oh, that's tough. <gasps> God. Well, I know them both quite well. And I love Soul to Soul. I'm going to go for Loose Ends. Okay. Okay. This is a tea question. This is a basic, all of us colonized people. I'm, I consider myself one of them. I drink copious amounts of tea every day. So okay. Earl Grey or English breakfast? Neither. I don't drink tea. I drink herbal teas. 
Oh, so give me your herbal tea of choice. Yeah, my favorite herbal tea of choice at the moment is dandelion. I love dandelion tea and matcha green tea as well. Okay, cool. And this is my last one. I might be starting like a war because like I have friends from like all over the world. Oh, I know where you're going with Mm -hmm. the jollof question, are you? Yes. Yeah. Well, of course, Ghana and jollof rice. (laughs) There is no other jollof rice as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I didn't even have to ask the full question. Right, so any of your listeners who haven't had jollof fries, don't waste your time with the others. Just go straight to <laughs> and jollof rice. So you know what is a close second? The Senegalese. Okay. Senegalese, they can do some jollof, man. But still, Ghana's number one. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. I love that I didn't even have to finish that question. <laughs> I love it. All right. Our last segment is the drop where we recommend something to our listeners. So I have my drop ready. I'll let you go first. What's your drop? Oh, oh, don't you want to do yours? So I get a feel of what the drop is. Okay. I can, I'll do mine. I'll do mine. Yeah. My drop is actually a movie. It's not a recent movie, but it, for some reason it's been like on my mind a lot. It's called primary colors. And it, it had John Travolta in it and Lester, our British actor, Adrian Lester's in it. He's great. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's made me reflective as we kind of go through this situation. Hey, I just legitimately love the movies. It's one of those movies, if I'm flipping the channels and it's on, no matter where it's on, I'll probably mm-hmm. watch a little bit of it. And even though it's, it's taken from this sort of discussion, particularly of like Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, when the book first came out, it was anonymously written and people speculated as to who it was about. And so it's a very much influenced by that campaign, his original campaign. But nonetheless, I think it's a interesting mediation on political choices and power, the decisions we make, getting mm. kind of pulled into people's orbits and how these political leaders are charismatic, but yet flawed. And for some reason, it kind of, been on my mind as a as a movie and so I want to recommend Primary Colors for those who haven't seen it to check it out. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm with you 100%. Love that film. I would like to recommend Meditation. I think we have a lot of time on our hands and a lot of people for whatever reason avoid meditation or don't think they can do it. And I think if ever there was a time to get into some sort of practice it would be now. And you don't even need to be spiritual. It's just about calming down the mind and taking time to take stock and focus on what you have to be grateful for. Yes, many of us are stuck in our homes, but you have a home. There are a lot of people who don't have homes right now. You know, yes, perhaps you can't go and get all your favorite foods or whatever, but you have food. And I think, you know, taking that time to just be grateful for the little things is so important. And that is what will carry us through these very strange times. Perfect. That is a great drop. And I would second meditation. It's very, very important. It's vital. 
to your all of your health, yeah, mental, physical well-being, highly recommend someone having some kind of practice and doing the best you can with it. Be gentle with yourself with all these things. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, this has been awesome. I want to thank you for taking the time and, and joining me. Thank you, Phil. It's always a pleasure. It's been far too long. Hopefully I'll be able to come to New York in August. If I do, it'd be lovely to catch up. Obviously, I'm and vice versa. So this has been great. So thank you so much again. Likewise. Take care. It's been a pleasure having June Sarpong join me on The Deep Dive. We discussed June's story career, first in radio, and then moving on to being one of the top presenters on MTV UK. We examined her upbringing in London to Ghanaian parents and the valuable lessons learned on how to thrive and use being a quote-unquote outsider as a superpower in order to achieve amazing things globally through philanthropy, her book Diversify, and her current role at the BBC. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side. <laughs>